Okay, so we're uh, continuing tonight the Effective Kingdom Prayer Series, and we uh, jumped ahead, if you remember the titles, we jumped ahead to Chapter 3 last week because the summer is winding down, and I want to get through uh, Chapter 3, which is called Five Types of Prayer, or you could say Five Kinds of Prayer. Um we're going to be looking at this. We're going to basically do one week on each of the five types. And last week, uh, we're actually going to do two weeks on the first one because last week I just didn't get through all the material. And so uh, the first one is, is uh, if you look under Roman numeral three, the first one is five types of prayer. Uh, the first one was reading scripture as prayer. The first type of prayer was reading scripture as prayer. So what we're basically dealing with here is uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. The, uh, the other types of prayer, just to look ahead, include praise and worship as prayer, uh, pe petitions with thanksgivings as prayer. That's about 90% of, of what people think of as prayer is, is giving God our petitions. And we're going to kind of bring that to a more biblical focus and help you understand the other four types of prayer are absolutely essential. The fourth type of prayer is intercession, and we're going to spend uh, two or three weeks on that one. Um, we're going to look at in, in effective, intercessional, uh, effective intercession principles in Scripture, and then we're going to look at effective intercession individuals in Scripture, like Nehemiah and so forth. Some of the great intercessors of the Bible. And then lastly, we're going to look at spiritual warfare and the concept of fighting progressively to establish the kingdom of God um, and fighting progressively to take more ground for Christ. So with that, last week we looked at, uh, we got about halfway through the materials, reading scripture as prayer. Going to just review that quickly. We uh, said that there are different aspects of knowing the Lord. Uh, the Bible says that one of the great promises of the Bible is called the priesthood of all believers. It's an idea uh, called the priesthood of all believers, that Jesus Christ is our high priest, and through the mediator of Christ, we can all know the Lord. We can all study the scriptures. We can all hear from the Holy Spirit. Uh, this does not mean that we don't need accountability. It doesn't mean we don't need Christian community. It doesn't mean there's not God doesn't raise up apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But it does mean that there's not a, a special type of priest who is your own, who is your mediator between you and God. I believe in confessing your sins to one another and so forth, but I do believe God wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to put, make you a new creation in Christ. He wants that new creation in Christ to be formed in the image of God and become more and more Christ-like as you mature and are sanctified and are set free. And as you set, get set free from all the damage of the fall and become all that God inten intended you to be uh, in, in the way he created you. As you progress in that, uh, you are a priest to God yourself and you know the Lord and you must hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and you must study the scriptures and you must uh, minister in the church and teach God's ways to God's people and so forth. So, in terms of that, some aspects of knowing God uh, that we should all know, if you want to break down knowing God into some different ways, um, knowing God's heart and mind and thoughts, 
not, and those are really separate. Uh, knowing God's heart. How does God, what is, how does he feel about things? Um, how does he think about things? That's slightly different. God's ways. God's ways are both corporate and individual. How does God take a group of people and take them on a journey to be his people and to accurately represent him and to, and to establish the kingdom of God in their hearts and lives? How does God take an individual and grant them the repentance that leads to life and, and cause them to be born again and cause them to start to grow in Christ? What are, the, what are trials for? and What are testings for? And these kind of things. We all have uh, trials, tribulations, and testings. Um, those are part, that's part of studying God's ways. You know, one of, the, one of the big differences is you watch people who grow consistently in the Lord versus people who don't grow. Most people who don't grow don't interpret the circumstances of their life correctly. Whereas most people who do grow really are established very deeply in their heart in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who call him, those who are called by him and, and, and love him and are called according to his purposes. Um, and they understand that everything that touches their life, their job situation, their roommates, their whatever, the things that come into your life are God's love gift to you. Nothing touches your life as his son or daughter. As you're, if you're a born-again Christian, uh, walking in the, rightly with the Lord, there's nothing comes in your life that isn't ultimately filtered through the love of God and the sovereignty of God. In other words, nothing is accidental. That situation you're in about this or that is not an accident. It's part of God's providential care to form you into Christ's image, to, into the character of Christ. And that's what we mean by God's ways. That's, that's huge. God, if you ever lose sight of God's sovereignty or his love, you'll actually spiritually crash. You'll grow right up in the Lord if you can always hold on to, no matter how bleak thing, what, you know, what God, what we call a bad day was actually a good day. <laughs> it was, if we received, you know, you might've got a speeding ticket and you might say, oh, that's a bad day. But maybe God ordained that you would get that speeding ticket because he's trying to tell you to slow down for your own good. And so as you thank God and give him praise for whatever touches your life, you're able to hear what he's trying to say and, and embrace the character he's trying to bring you. God's law is another whole issue, and that's uh, what we have today in a lot of evangelicalism is what's called antinomianism, but an idea that the law of God's not important. But if you remember the Puritans and uh, you also remember the, the Reformers and the, uh, John Knox and all these people, people the, the law of God refers specifically to the Ten Commandments as it is listed in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy actually means the second giving of the law, the repeated word for word, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the first. Most of the chapter is word for word the same. Then there's what's called the case laws, normally translated as ordinances or statutes in, in most Bibles. But a case law is how to apply the law. Jesus gives us a case law after he says in Matthew 5, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets, uh, but not uh, a single 
jot or tittle will be erased from the law till all is finished. And he goes on to say that anyone who teaches against the law will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who teaches people to observe the law and follow the law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he gives us case laws. He says, you thought, you heard that it was, that you're not supposed to commit adultery. I tell you, don't lust after women in your heart. And what he's establishing, if you, it, it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, in fact, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. It's teachings for what it means to be a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ is someone who the law of God is no longer external, written on tablets of stone, but it's become internal as the inner desire of your heart. So the grace of God actually establishes the law. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law, but to put it into force in Matthew 5. So then he says, you've heard, he gives us another case law of how, that, how grace works. And he says, you've heard you're not supposed to kill your brother. And I tell you, if you even call your brother Raka, which actually means a, a, basically an airhead or an empty head, uh, which, you know, uh, it's amazing how much uh, we you hear people disdaining other people oh he's stupid or he boy that was boy he's got air between his ears or whatever Jesus says if you do that you're murdering your brother in your heart and you're guilty enough to go into the hell of fire so that's how case laws work and uh, it's interesting that every single one of the Ten Commandments is repeated as an exhortation for Christians to observe in the New Testament around 30 40 50 times a piece you know, Paul says, stop lying to one another. He says, be forgiving to one another, which is the opposite of murdering and so forth. So uh, then, of course, uh, one of the most important things that, that's lost to the church today is studying God's plans and purpose. What does God intend to do in terms of is taking his church and work, restoring it and working through it to fill all the earth with his glory? Now, uh, then I believe we talked last week some about point B on the back of your outline, knowing the living word versus the written word. And uh, has everybody got that point B on the uh, following that along? Are you following along with us, Jeff? There on, uh, on the back of the outline, point B there. Um, Jesus Christ is called the living word of God in Scripture. And we know him primarily through knowing the written word. Jump down to the third scripture that I've listed there. I want to focus on that one for a minute. These are uh, both after the resurrection. The first one is when Jesus is, verse 27 is when Jesus is talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then the, the uh, second one is when he's talking to the disciples just before he ascends into heaven. The first time he says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. Now, in a Hebrew way of thinking, that would be a way of saying beginning with what we call the Old Testament, the whole thing of it. Uh, sometimes the first five books were called the Law or the Torah. Uh, sometimes the rest of it was called the Prophets, depending on uh, usage and so forth. So Jesus is basically saying the whole Old Testament, and it says beginning with with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, beginning with the whole Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You know, we have a funny little joke about the word all, that we diligently looked up the Greek and studied what all means in the Greek, and we found out that all means all. And uh, the point being, 
is that all of the Old Testament testifies of Jesus Christ. If you, if you w- claim you know God, if you want to know God, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus Christ without knowing the Old Testament scriptures because they testify of him. John, in John 5, 39, he's rebuking the religious people and he says, you search the scriptures, John 5, 39, because you think in them you have eternal life, but the scriptures bear witness of me. So if you want to know Jesus, the scriptures will bear witness, just like in John 15, 26, when he says that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will bear witness. See, our faith is based on three types of witnesses, the witness of the scriptures, the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the witness of the church, beginning with the apostles as his selected witnesses. So later, when he appears to the disciples just before he ascends into heaven and he's giving them their instructions with the Great Commission and telling them to wait in Jerusalem until they get baptized in the Spirit and receive the promise of the Father and all of that, uh, right in verse 44 and 45 of that passion of, uh, portion of Scripture, which goes on from 44 to 53, uh, we just had room on the page for the, uh, for the ones that pertain to our point for tonight. But he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, why did he say uh, it differently than the last time? It was just two different ways Hebrew people would refer to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Sometimes you would call all of the scriptures outside the Torah, the prophets. Other times you would call... uh, the uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, and Psalms, you would call those the Psalms uh, because they were the witness, the, the wisdom literature. And then what you would call the books that we call today, we call them the other historical books from, from Joshua through Esther and, what we, and the prophets, the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. They would have called all of those... Um, 29 books, the the prophets. So in this case, Jesus is really saying the same thing. Uh, He's just saying it a little more thoroughly, you might say. In the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, in the whole Old Testament, everything that was written about him had to be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. uh, As Paul brings out in his letters to the Corinthians, when he talks about the letter kills and the law gives life and so forth, he talks about how there's a veil that lies over the, the, uh, the writings of Moses and the law and the Old Testament scriptures, and that veil is removed in Christ. Um, when you begin to get the tools, like I, a lot of times I'll uh, get people who've mostly been discipled in the Americanized uh, philosophies of, of Christianity today, which usually don't have a lot of scripture involved in them, But if you get to know the scriptures better, one of the things you'll see is how to find Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. First of all, in the Old Testament, almost every individual is either a type of Christ or a type of Antichrist. Pharaoh is a type of Antichrist. Uh, But Adam is, is, Jesus is called the second Adam. Adam is a foreshadowing of Christ. His son Abel is a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, All the way through, Abraham is a foreshadowing of Christ in in some ways. Uh, Isaac's a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, Joseph is one of the great foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament. 
and on and on and on. Um, so also many, like in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, all over and over again, God foreshadows Christ in the events of the Old Testament. That's why when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Everyone in that audience had read their Bible so well, because Hebrew young men would memorize the first five books of the Bible, that when he said, behold, the Lamb of God, they immediately knew he was talking about Exodus 12, the Passover lamb who had to be, uh, had to be spotless and blameless. And, uh, that, and that John was, was saying, this is the fulfillment of what that Passover lamb foreshadowed. And, of course, in the vine, and there's all, there's all kinds of foreshadowings of Christ, the rock, the, uh, the, the manna, and many of them are specifically stated in the New Testament. So um, that's the whole thing of knowing. Uh, we can only come to know the living word. God wants you to know two ways. He wants you to know intellectually, and he wants you to know spiritually and experientially. By the Holy Spirit, we have experiences of the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we come to know uh, the Lord Jesus uh, in a personal, ex ex I hate the word personal but because it's too individualistic, but it, in a spiritual, a, a tangible, concrete way. Uh, but the foundation of that is you have to also know him in a cognitive, scriptural, intellectual way. And uh, that is one of the reasons the church has gotten more and more weak as it's gotten more and more anti-intellectual over the last 150 years to where we're now having to fight a battle with just about everyone who comes to, to know the Lord. Um, it, sometimes they need to hear 100 to 200 messages on why they should read the scripture before it starts affecting their actual reading the scripture that much. Almost everyone... If you, you know, the, one of the metaphors for scripture, Jesus in, in, in Matthew 4, 4 and Luke 4, 4, it's interesting that they're both the same. Uh, when he's dealing with the temptations in the wilderness, one of the, he, he strikes the serpent with the sword of God's word that comes out of his mouth in Revelation 19. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3 there. And so what he's saying is, uh, is, is there's dozens of scriptures who bring this out. Your scripture is your actual nourishment. And what we have today is we have many people who are very well nourished uh, or not uh, physically. But almost everyone is starving spiritually because no one has told them, uh, read the scriptures for yourself and read them just as seriously as you would take eating. Most people have three meals a day. Most people spend a half an hour to an hour to two hours eating each day, but they spend 10 and 15 minutes reading the word each day. And so their spirit is in their mind is starving. Now, for our, that's all last week. For our remaining time this week, we're gonna start with point C about meditating on scripture. And that is, uh, how to read the scripture reflectively, uh, contemplatively, how to, how to mull it over, you know, how to think about it, how to pray about it, how to read it 
devotionally, how to, how to let it get in you and change you. You know, Paul tells the, the Thessalonians that they receive the word of God and that it, uh, for what it actually is, the word of God and not of man. And then he says, which, which effectually works or is effective. The word of God is effective in, any, in anyone who receives it with belief. Jesus said, if you listen, if you read my words and do what I've said, if you follow the word, that you'll be like a house planted on a rock. You know, I actually run into Christians today, some often, that have maybe been a Christian for more than six months or a year and have never even read all four Gospels. Or if they've been a Christian three or four years, they maybe read all four Gospels once when, you know, at a minimum, you should read all four Gospels at least uh, once, twice, three times a year. Uh, it takes... You know, when you, on your 30th and 40th and 50th reading of the Gospels is when you really start to, to uh, have them come alive to you. I remember, uh, oh, around 1998, um, I was reading Matthew for probably about the 100th to 150th time. And all of a sudden, I understood a hundred times more about Matthew than I'd ever understood. I just saw the whole book as one theme and that it was the fulfillment of all the prophets and it was God's covenant lawsuit against Israel. And it was the establishing of his new kingdom people, the church and all, all you know, it just the whole thing just came uh, alive in a way that I'd never understood it before uh, just because I'd worked it over and gnawed on it and thought about it so many times that finally my blind eyes were opened by the grace of God to another level of seeing what God always intended to show in the book of Matthew. And uh, my prayer for you is that you'd have those kinds of experiences in the scriptures regularly and often. Where, uh, you know, a lot of times what will happen is you're studying more and more of God's word and good theology and church history and things like that is you'll go through a season where actually the number of questions you have begin to begins to rise. And then later, those questions will start to come clear. And you'll be kind of on a whole new step or plateau of understanding God's Word. So let's talk a little bit about meditating on God's Word. Um, in Joshua uh, 1, 8 and 9, it says this, This book of the law... Uh, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that it says. How could you be careful to do all that it says if you haven't read it? You, you should, uh, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you, should, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do and observe all that it says. And then the rest of it is, is the payoff. It says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. God uh, promised Joshua and Israel that he would give them every place that, the feet, that their feet tread. Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at thy right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, Romans 16 Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Romans 16, 20. God intends to give you an, 
um, like the prayer of Jabesh, it, when he prays, oh, Lord, I would that you would enlarge my tent and, and, and uh, et cetera. God intends to give you more responsibility, more influence, um, more, more um, effectiveness, more fruitfulness. You're, you're where you walk, you're supposed to capture for Christ. If you work at Kroger's uh, or Frisch's or whatever, just through your being filled with the Spirit and your prayer and so forth, things of God should happen there. Everywhere you go, that's God's intention. So with that, if this book of the law shall not depart from you out, but you'll meditate on it day and night, and then that's what many of the promises of God are are based on let's look at think about the word meditate for a minute the hebrew word for meditate means to chew the cut and uh, as you know if uh the the bible teaches sometimes what's called didactically when paul is laying out doctrine and this kind of thing but uh, often teaches through parable metaphor images and word pictures and so in this case, God is giving us a word picture as to how our relationship should be with Scripture. When a, when a cow meditates, that is when a cow chews the cud, a cow takes a, a bit of hay, usually a big gulp, and starts to chew it over. And he chews it over, and it mixes with saliva, and it's kind of dripping and drooling, and, and he chews it and chews it and chews it, and finally, after enough chewing, he can swallow it. Or she. There's female cows, of course. Uh, so when uh, the cow finishes chewing the cud and swallowing it, it goes to the cow's first stomach. And just like in the human condition, the stomach has all kinds of acids and digestive juices that it releases and starts to break down the hay or straw or whatever the cow is eating. However, unlike humans, cows have two stomachs, and so cows regurgitate the, uh, the, what they've chewed and swallowed, and they, they actually throw it up out of their first stomach back into their mouths and chew it some more. <laughs> now, that's kind of gross, I think. It's not, definitely not good manners. Don't, please don't do that when I invite you over for dinner. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's kind of the—and then the cow swallows it again. And then once it's to a certain level of full digested, it goes to the second stomach to be completely digested in the intestine tract and so forth, and then becomes part of the cow's muscles and fat. What God is saying is, I want you not just to read the word as some sort of academic exercise, but to think about it, to question God. We're, not, we're, when you, we're going to talk about five different approaches to reading the word tonight. In, uh, based on this word meditate is, is, the, is what the, is the, one, the, the one type of reading the word is called the devotional approach. And the devotional approach, uh, you think about the word, you repent before the word, you cry out to God for grace before the word, you cross-reference uh, when you're studying the word, you, you look up other scriptures about whatever you're reading and and you make new commitments, or maybe you put some things in your daytime, or your mind, you know, uh, and so forth. But you're 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 actually relating to God through His Word. You're prayerfully reading the Word. 
And that's really what, you, what uh, meditation is so important because that's how the word becomes flesh in the cow. And that's why you like steak <laughs> because that hay, corn, whatever the, uh, the grazing in the pastures has, has become beef. It's become muscle. It's become flesh. And there's an old saying that all theology must become incarnational. If you have theological understanding that isn't worked out into your character, into your worldview, into your goals, your purposes in life, then it's just, it's just fluff. That's why Paul says knowledge by itself puffs up. It's like a balloon. It's just air. But love builds up. That's sometimes missed in English translations because we usually say edifies, but the edify oikodemeo is the Greek word means to build up. So he's comparing being puffed up with being built up. Have, and it's really about having knowledge theoretically uh, versus having knowledge incarnationally to allow you to be an extension of the love of God and the ministry of Christ, reconciliation and redemption and deliverance and all the things that God is doing for the human race. He wants you to be his vehicle for that. So let's look at five approaches to Scripture. Now, there's a uh, two other handouts I gave you tonight, and it's partly because I want to start right now plugging what we'll be doing at Wright State this fall. And at Wright State this fall and Tuesday nights will be our regular Rock Campus Fellowship meetings. But we will continue to have a Bible study on Thursday nights, and I'm thinking about adding one on Wednesday nights. But what we do is this, uh, this Bible study called Search the Scriptures. So if you look at, uh, please get your outline out that says Search the Scriptures titles and uh, look at that. And uh, you'll see that Search the Scriptures is... Um, really something that most people need today. What, what I attempted to do there is I first taught this at uh, uh, when we were part of the Assemblies of God Church uh, 15, 20 years ago, and I've expanded it and developed it and continued to improve it since then. And um, it's basically um, based on in, in John five thirty nine when we already quoted tonight, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life but the, the scriptures testify of me. So what I'm basically doing is trying to you do a series of studies. There's uh, about 40 studies in this, and it takes about two to three school years to get through them uh, because we spend, uh, oh, one, two, or three weeks on each chapter. But it's kind of a detailed uh, way of laying a foundation so that you'll know how to study the Bible for yourself. Um, one of the most fruitful talks I have with people nowadays is lots and lots of people say, well, I have never read the Old Testament much. I don't know how to get stuff out of it. Well, that's part of what Search the Scriptures is about, how to get more out of your Bible. And there's basically one, six uh, topics in the 40 chapters, and each, each topic is several chapters. And uh, it takes you through, the first topic is taking your Bible study to a fruitful level, Second topic is how to build a framework for understanding and interpreting the scriptures, and that includes some studies on what's called hermeneutics, which is um, if you were going to Bible college, you would have to take a class on hermeneutics, which is how to interpret scripture. 
Uh, then we talk about spiritual lenses, the whole idea of paradigms and worldviews that, that all of us have, with, whether we know them or not. Then we talk about major themes of scripture. And then there's the last two topics are a brief survey of the Old Testament and a brief survey of the New Testament. So I wanted to kind of plug that because that's going to be Wednesday and Thursday nights this year. The Thursday night one will probably start at about chapter 12 because that's about how far we got last year. Whereas the uh, Wednesday night one will probably start back at the beginning. Now, take this other sheet, which is called Church of Scripture Series Part 3. Part 3, which is under the major topic called how to take your Bible study to another level and make, it, make Scripture study more of a priority in your life, which a lot of people need help with, uh, most people need help with in our day and age. That, um, that particular Bible study looks at five approaches to studying the Bible in the in the outline for tonight i just gave you two of the approaches the devotional approach um actually i just gave you that one but i want to i want to tonight since we i thought we since we didn't quite make it last week and we and i had very little that i had to get through this week to, i just thought i'd tack this on so you could because uh, i think this is beneficial if you know this information there are five ways that people study the bible today all of them have great benefit all of them have some limitations and you should know the benefits and the limitations of each so that over the years you uh i always seek the lord i i happen to have a nice situation where my birthday is december 2nd and usually from thanksgiving to january 1st is approximately a 40 days of course that fluctuates a little based on where thanksgiving is and 40 days is kind of a biblical unit of time. I usually spend that 40 days seeking the Lord for a, 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 a kind of a scripture word for the coming year and scripture goals and other kinds of goals. I, you know, I have goals for, for what I weigh. I have goals for evangelism. I have goals for scripture study, et cetera. Uh, I have financial goals. And, and frankly, if you don't live that way, they always say, aim at nothing and you'll surely hit it. And uh, <laughs> um, so I would encourage you to, to study. Uh, the, one of the studies in this Research of Scripture series is actually on how to set goals and how to not set them too high so they become discouraging, not set them too low so that they don't take some effort to get to. And in uh, all that, lots of principles about how to set goals how to balance them in, 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 with all your responsibilities in life and so forth. Now, so let's go through these five approaches. We, can, we have about 20 more minutes. Hopefully I can do each of them in four or five minutes. The first is called the topical or thematic approach. Uh, most Bible teaching in most Bible-believing churches today and most homilies at old traditional churches and sermons are topical or thematic. Now, what you do when you take a topical approach is you study a particular subject in Bibles in, in the Bible. You might study uh, the kingdom of God. That's a topical Bible study we're doing for for two years in our church at night on our Sunday school at 930 right now. You might study God's plan of redemption. You might study the church. Uh, you might study prayer, which is what we're doing on Wednesday nights. That's a thematic or topical approach. Most uh, teaching in churches today is a thematic approach. Now, a tool you can use for this 
is in the before the internet was what's called an exhaustive concordance and uh there's uh, also things like Nave's topical bible but there's various bible tools to help you with this i remember in 1974 i came to christ and of course i was a pothead and didn't have much vocabulary much knowledge so when i uh, it was about one month in the Lord. I, I discovered what's ca called an exhaustive concordance, but I didn't know what that, I didn't have any theological training at that time. So I, I thought, I wonder if they called it exhaustive concordance because he must have been really tired when he did all this because they, an exhaustive, that was kind of a stupid joke, but uh, exhaustive concordance has, you know, every word in the Bible that you can look up. So if you can remember one word in a passage, you can look it up. Uh, however, modern search engines, I, I use uh, primary, I love a uh, blue letter Bible. Bible Gateway is probably the one I use the most. I, I actually have an English Standard Version Bibles online that I use. And, and so, because of course, if you can remember two words then, so you can narrow your search and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of that is um, a, a thematic study you might do, let's say you're struggling with fear. Well, you might just put in fear and study fear and then you would if you looked up a lot of verses on fear you'd probably if you're trying to organize your thoughts you'd probably come to understand that the bible mostly endorses the fear of god and most uh, all other fears are problematic sometimes they come out of our sin nature sometimes they come up from the devil but as you studied further you'd come to understand that that's actually a twisting of a good thing god gave you a certain level of caution so that like like for instance i always say when when i walk on the ridge trail on the the uh, at clifton gorge uh and i want to go out and look over i i get within like two feet of the edge and look out but i don't go like stick my toes out over the edge <laughs> and stuff because i have a healthy respect for the fact that it would really hurt if i fell like a hundred and some feet on rocks and might kill me so uh so there's a caution that God builds in that's not necessarily bad, but for instance, if your job is a painter or whatever, you might have the caution of setting the ladder correctly and making sure it's secure and so forth, but you don't want to let a fear be so paralyzing that you can't climb the ladder. So you discover some things like that about fear, and then hopefully eventually you discover that the Bible says perfect love cast out all fears, and that actually... Uh, the antidote for fear is to go deeper in intimacy with Christ. The more you love God, the more you are filled with the knowledge of how much he loves you, the more bold you'll become. The Bible even says the righteous are bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one's pursuing. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? The wicked flee when the people have fears of things that are irrational, in other words. Lots of fears are not based in anything, right? And they're just based in, in our sinful nature or they're based in demonic spirits or they're based in, uh, you know, bad experiences that we've had that we haven't really processed right before God and been delivered or healed from or whatever. Lots of fears are, are, are crippling. So that would be an, a, an example of a topical approach you might have if you had a particular kind of problem. You could do that with lust or laziness or unbelief or whatever, gluttony or whatever you want, whatever you want. Now, that's the advantage of a thematic approach. It could, it could, 
it could zero in on a particular topic and problem, but there's some, uh, there's some cautions you want to use. There's some disadvantages to the thematic approach. One of the reasons that most people don't know that much about the faith anymore is because they've gone to churches that, are, that all, the subject, all the teachings are thematic instead of what we're going to talk about with uh, expositional and so forth. And so you tend to major in minor themes, and you tend to skip certain topics altogether. You kind of avoid certain topics that aren't that popular or that might be that might be touchy or whatever. And so that's that's a real um, a real disadvantage of the topical approach. Another disadvantage is often the verses are wrestled out of their context. You know, you need to always understand uh, scripture in its at least its context of the paragraph or so around it, but more preferably the chapter and more preferably that chapter and what the whole purpose of that book is. So that's uh, uh, a problem. Now, an antidote to, to too much topical studying is to get on a program of what's called exegetical and comprehensive approach, which are numbers four and five that we'll be looking at so that'll make sense to you. Uh, another problem is that there are actually misemphasis, uh, what I would call doctrinal demons, and lots of this stuff that goes on in the name of studying the end times and and um, faith, and you know, like uh, obviously uh, big ministries that are on TV and radio, they always have to talk about giving and, and tithing, and 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 if you give, God will give to you, and so forth, and. They ha that has to get out of balance with in terms of the balance of all of Scripture. Uh, so that, you know, topical approach too much can leave you not knowing very important topics and get you all whacked out about things. And, that, and Jesus addressed that when he was rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees in his day, and he said, woe are you because you swallow a gnat, or, uh, or you strain out a gnat, I'm sorry, and swallow a camel. In other words, you're so concerned about minor topics that you're missing the bigger picture altogether. That's really what we're trying to address in this Kingdom of God series. Uh, most of the church in our day and age is not aiming for the right goals. They don't see the bigger picture. And that's what the main purpose of getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is for the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you into all truth, to see bigger pictures. Now, um, the second uh, type of studying is, is devotional approach. And this is the one where you pray, that you read the scripture most prayerfully. And this is, uh, I'm going to read uh, this verse here in um, James, which I, I love. They named this book after our own James Davis. No, I don't think so. Uh, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, in all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted. In other words, if the word gets planted into your spirit, into your heart, into your mind, into your inner being, the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Uh, many translations use deceive themselves there. And actually, the concept of self-delusion or self-deception is a major theme of the New Testament, especially in the writings of James and Jude, our Lord's brothers, who actually were deceived themselves and didn't come to know the Lord until after the resurrection. 
And so um, self-deception is a major, major part of what it means to walk with God is to be delivered progressively from darkness, that is from self-deception, into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the light of truth and reality. For if anyone of the, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgot what kind of person he is or was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having a forgetful here, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Now, hopefully you've uh, followed the concept that I stress over and over again called reading the reverse negative. To get reading comprehension, you actually have to use that principle. So if it says the, the man who uh, doesn't become a forgetful hearer but becomes an effectual doer will be blessed in what he does, then that means the person who's, uh, is a for it doesn't do the word but forgets the word is not blessed in what he does and there god's grace is free to us but there are those who take it and those who don't and god wants you to progressively grow in the grace and wisdom of god even as luke 2 points out that our lord himself did now uh, Hebrews 4.12 says it this way, the word of God is living and active. It's not dead. It's not inactive. It, it's effectual and powerful. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division between soul and spirit. You know that without the word of God and without the Holy Spirit, without growing in Christ, you can't actually come to be able to discern the difference between what are your emotions and a spiritual thought. What are your mental thoughts and a spiritual thought? Uh, it's the word of God that enables you to grow up to the point where it says that Jesus perceived in his spirit that the Pharisees were thinking of evil thoughts. Do you know it's normal in the Christian life to be so full of the spirit that by the Holy Spirit, you perceive in your spirit uh, many things that are going on around you that you couldn't perceive without the Word of God and the Holy Spirit being uh, being so integral to your life. So again, the Word, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge, able to divide between uh, soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Corinthians 2 says, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that's in him? Even so, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Holy Spirit of God. For the Spirit of God searches out all things, even the depths of God. Do you know you can't even know your own heart apart from the Lord showing it to you? Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs that every man's way is right in their own sight, but the Lord weighs the motive. Do you know that today in our increasingly pagan culture, 80% of people surveyed say that they live a life, a, morally, a life that's morally superior to others. Of course, that doesn't work, does it? The math doesn't work. How could 80% of people be more righteous than 80% than of people? So the word of God will actually show you the thoughts and intentions of your heart. If you have selfish ambition, if you have pride, if you have doubt, uh, 
fears, unbeliefs, procrastination, whatever, the Word of God will show you, you as God sees you, which is very liberating. It's like a mirror. When you go in the morning in the mirror and you got bedhead and you got bad breath and you breathe and the mirror cracks and and you got stubble on your face and you need a shave or whatever, you don't just go, what a mess, and then just go to work. <laughs> you brush your teeth and shave or wash your face or wash your hair or whatever. You, you do some things because the mirror has shown you who you really are. Is that I hope we get that. That's the devotional approach. And um, I, I'll just tell you some of my secrets. Like when I read the Word, I try to have many times a week where I just get very alone with the Bible and no one can bother me. I have a study for that purpose. And I even often turn off the cell phone. And I don't uh, take Internet messages or anything. I just get alone with God. That's what Jesus said. Go into your inner room and pray to your father who is sees in secret. And again, reading the word is the first and foremost type of prayer. It's communing with the word, very words of God himself. It's a prayer that listens, not just, not just gives a laundry list of what you want God to do for you. And we'll talk about that when we, uh, in terms of effective prayer, when, when we talk about prayer with supplication. So, I, I basically, I repent before it. I cry out to God for grace. I pray every day for this, this list. I say, God, let me know your ways. Let me know your plans and purposes in the earth. Uh, let me align my life with your bigger plans and purposes, not what I think is your plans, uh, etc. Let me know how you deal with people. Let me know your law. Let me know, uh, equip me to liberate people to serve people, to see people get set free from bondage and darkness and inner hearts and, and spiritual confusion. Uh, all those, I'm, I'm praying to God for those kind of things when I'm reading the word devotionally. Okay, so now stay on this uh, three, five approaches to Bible study, part three, and flip over, please. Uh, the third thing is called a character study. Oh, by the way, the, the, I forgot to mention the problems. If you only read the Bible devotionally, some people will just read like a little devotional, which gives you one scripture and some meditation on it. Some people will just read part of a chapter or a chapter. The problem with that is it's a little bit like having a diet of just, uh, just vegetables, but you don't have any meat or, or whatever. It's not a balanced diet. It's not comprehensive diet, and it's just not enough. It's a little bit like yeah, did, uh, did you have breakfast today? Oh, sure. What'd you have? Oh, you know, I had a cracker, <laughs> you know, and uh, did you have lunch? Nah, not really, because I had that cracker this morning. I didn't want to overdo it. That was like 20 calories or, or, you know, I had a hard-boiled egg, which is 60 or 80 calories, depending on the size of the egg. You know, that's not enough for a whole day. So the problem with, with the, a devotional mentality is sometimes you get into sort of a parts mentality or, or what you might say an hors d'oeuvre party mentality. I love a good hors d'oeuvre party with high quality hors d'oeuvres. Haven't been to one in a long time. And, uh, but it's not, uh, you don't want to make a whole diet out of hors d'oeuvres all the time. So that the problem with uh, that in Second Timothy 2.15, Paul addresses that to, in the King James Version, he says to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
the New American Standard says, be diligent to present yourself. And so one says study, the other says diligent. To present yourself approved to God as a workman. Both of them have that word workman. You know, that's like working hard. And people think that, you know, like Jesus is just always supposed to be fun. And if I read scripture at all, I'm just going to dabble a little bit here or there. But work is painstaking. Work is when, you know, you're working in the cotton fields and your hands start bleeding or you're doing carpentry and, and uh, you're exhausted at the end of the day. Be, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Um, I remember because I was under the dispensational uh, kind of mentalities of American Christianity at first. I remember the first four and a half months I was a Christian, I was very, very hungry for the word of God. But I read the whole New Testament 10 times, but I only read the Old Testament one time during the four and a half months. And uh, now I started getting to know the New Testament really well, but I should have read the Old Testament two or three times at least to start to get more familiar with the whole Old Testament um, during that period. Uh, and I read the book of Acts like 40 times, and uh, I began to say, God, help us to understand how the, the biblical church was this way and the contemporary church is that way and what are all the missing pieces and how do we get back there that, that I started asking that question 40 years ago this fall. So that's the problem with if you only have a devotional approach, you're just kind of like doing like an a la carte approach of a little hors d'oeuvres here and there. It's not enough. But it is essential that you have some devotional reading where you're communing with God and he's speaking to your spirit and you're repenting and you're asking for grace and you're praying and you're looking up stuff that, that wow, that really makes me think about this and, and that sort of thing. That's the devotional approach. Thirdly, the character study approach. I'm not going to give us much on that because uh, we're getting out of time, but a character study approach studies particular characters to see how God individually or how he takes groups of people, the church, on how they decline or how they grow in the processes of God. Um, in, in Romans 11, Paul breaks into worship and he says, Oh, the depth and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Character studies teach you the ways of God what the purpose of temptation is, what the purpose of trial, how does God uh, call a person into his service? How does God de draw? Jesus said no one can come unless the Father draws him. How does God draw people into the kingdom uh, through the effectual working of the gospel and so forth? Now, some of my favorites include Abraham, Noah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, etc. Uh, some of the women that are really important in the Bible include Eve, Sarah, Deborah, Ruth, Abigail, Esther, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Dorcas, Julia, etc. Most people don't know who Julia is. She's in Romans. I'll give you a hint. You can find her in Romans chapter 16. Um, fourthly, an exegetical approach uh, or an expository approach. Now, exegesis is basically comes from uh, the Greek word for uh, drawing out of scripture what's in there. So what it means, exegesis means to study a, a, a passage very thoroughly. You're looking up the Greek, you're cross-referencing. You maybe are looking at uh, what other Christians have thought over the centuries about that passage or whatever. 
but you're trying to draw out everything that's in there. Uh, there's a tool on the internet called the Blue Letter Bible that's very, very helpful for that. Um, and uh, exegesis is, you know, usually use study tools like study Bibles, concordances, lexicons. I don't have time to develop what all those are today. Uh, but you do word studies and so forth. Um, the limitation on, on um, exegetical studies is in, unless you've read the whole Bible systematically and comprehensively several times, if you're only doing exegetical studies, you're, you uh, can spend forever uh, in a passage. I started doing an exegetical study of Ephesians once, and I had to give it up after about 10 or 12 weeks because we were only uh, in about verse 9 of the first chapter. Um, I used to have a thing on Saturday nights year, many years ago, like 30 years ago, we used to have an hors d'oeuvre party on Saturday nights that was an exegetical party. It was before the Internet. Um, and so... Each person would sit, we'd sit in a big circle, about 12 different leaders uh, would sit in a big circle with each person would have a different translation of the Bible on their lap. They would have a, uh, a concordance or a commentary or a lexicon or something like that. And we would just go, we started with First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, and we would just uh, read a passage. Then different people would say, well, this, this Bible study tool I have brings this insight to the table and so forth. And uh, I would just sit there and take notes on what everyone was saying. It was a really fun thing to do. And, of course, we'd have good food and whatever. <laughs> you know? um, expository approach is, is more a thing you do publicly. And an expository, of which some, some, some churches, especially if they tend to have a Reformation bent to their theology, uh, they... They will teach mostly expository. John teaches at our 1030 meeting expository teaching. And that's where you basically work, you read a whole chapter of scripture and you work through that chapter. And you're normally working through one book at a time, like John did a series on the book of Acts for a while. Uh, last I looked, he was still doing, he's doing a series on 1 John right now and so forth. So that's expository. And then lastly is the systematic and comprehensive approach. And this, I, I don't have much time, but I want to hit this the hardest if I can. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And we get the doctrine called the plenary inspiration of Scripture from that, from that doc, uh, Scripture and from Psalm 119, um, verse 160, that says, The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Now, when I say the sum of your word is truth, here's here's the what I mean by that. If you uh, like, let's say football, uh, let's say Americanized football. Uh, in Americanized football, you score mostly in threes for field goals and six with the extra point seven for touchdowns. And so, if the score is forty-two to twenty-one, uh, if you had three less touchdowns. You wouldn't have 42, you'd have 21. <laughs> or, or the, you know, the sum is, is a really important concept. I mean, it's really easy to understand the concept of sum, but the point is the sum of your word is truth. So if you don't know all of the word, you're missing, you're missing out on tons. That, that's epidemic in the church today. Lots and lots of people know their favorite parts of the New Testament, maybe some Psalms, maybe some Proverbs, but most people don't know the sum of God's word. 
they couldn't tell you the major themes of the major prophets or uh, what the major theme of Hosea is and what is the point that God's making by having Hosea marry a prostitute and so forth and what he's trying to say to his people about his ways and Israel's unfaithfulness, uh, breaking their, because God was supposed to be their husband and and. And they wouldn't see the tie into the New Testament where we're called the bride of Christ. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I was afraid over you, lest you be deceived, because I betrothed you to one virgin, and so forth. So um, that that's that's a huge, huge thing. And um, I, I don't know what else to say. Psalm 119 is a whole psalm about me- meditations, about why all of God's word is so important. But um, if, you know, what's kind of a, a funny thing that's happened, and it's funny and not funny, ha-ha, but it's just strange, is that since the Civil War, with the, with the rise of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, ideas that were born in, in fundamental Christianity or evangelical Christianity that the Pentecostal and charismatic movements have been born out of, um, Never in the church history has there been uh, so big a commitment externally to all scriptures inspired by God, but we've been in a 150-year slide of how much people study the scripture. And there's probably never been a time in church history where there's been less diligent study of scripture among people who say, I believe the whole Bible is the word of God. There's an old rock song I'll close, uh, close with. I, I don't know my rock song, so I don't know. I think the band might have been called Queen. I, I don't know. Just they would. Uh, I just know the one line, but it's they sing. You're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. You guys ever remember? You're fooling yourself. You don't believe it. The reason the Bible is a mirror that you need is because we we have the, we need the scriptures. We need the Holy Spirit. We need other brothers and sisters in, in an accountable way to help us see where we're really at. Almost everyone, we have, we have deep-seated insecurities that came with the fall of man and sin and so forth. Almost everybody is trying to feel good about themselves, which God wants you to do. But he wants you to, to feel good about yourself by ba- building on the right foundation. And the foundation is the living word of God in the written word of God.